Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 91 of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Eric Sperling, and Eric is a former Army vet, special ops, and commanding officer, uh, and currently he's working over at AMG in the sales and marketing realm as a, a founder and principal, and he's got a lot of great experiences to share with us. I definitely think you guys are going to learn a lot from this episode. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show and it'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Eric Sperling, and Eric is the co-founder and managing partner at the Allen Morgan Group, a digital marketing and SEO agency based here in Columbus. And Eric focuses on marketing and sales for AMG. Before AMG, Eric graduated from West Point and served the U.S. Army as a Green Beret and commanding officer. He was the COO and second-in-command of a 104-person Special Forces element, as well as two infantry platoons in Operation Iraqi Freedom, and we are honored to have him here on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Eric. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's always great to have someone like yourself here on the show. So what, what's your day been like so far? What's a typical day look like for you? Yeah, so... I wish I could say that I had a more structured day, but with with three kids, you kind of never know what what the morning's going to bring. So, typically, I like to like wake up on my own around around five, but sometimes it's you know three or two or whatever. So you're trying to figure out uh, how you're going to catch a little bit of additional sleep and, and have enough energy to to drive through the day. What ages are the kids? Yeah, so we have a five month old that uh, I think he's 
24 pounds, so he's, he's a little hefty there. Um, we have a two-and-a-half-year-old named Gideon and then a five-year-old girl named Regan. 25 pounds? How big did he come out? Uh, about six. Yeah. yeah. He, he's been eating well. He's he put on a serious walk cycle here. <laughs> yeah, you know, milk, you know, high-fat, high high-fat milk. <laughs> he was accidentally born on the kitchen floor, so at least there's a story, right? I mean, not too many kids, I don't think, these days are accidentally born on the kitchen floor, but it's all because I dawdled and didn't get my wife you know, out of the house fast enough because <laughs> I was trying to get some work stuff knocked out, you know? <laughs> so... So what did your childhood look like growing up for you personally? Let's kind of take a step back and, you know, kind of bring our way to Alan Morgan Group. But what did your childhood look like growing up? Can you take us through kind of from growing up with your family to going to West Point? What age did you hit 25 pounds? Me? Uh, probably like four. That's good. Who <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. runs in the family or what's going on here? I, I think Gideon was two. I think, um, no, uh, one and a half. My daughter was two. So, you know, he's, he's a, a head on the curve there. So he's like a nugget. He's like a little, he's almost like a kettlebell, kind of feels like. <laughs> yeah, like a so you're doing a, you're doing like a Turkish get-up when you're like, like <laughs> got this kid and you're standing up. Um, yeah, so not quite 25 pounds. Took me a while. You know, I remember hitting 100 pounds. That was a great day for me. I think I was in the seventh grade. You know, hit a hit 100 pounds there. And, you know, first thing I did is like, never mind. I won't, I won't go into that story. Uh, that would be a little, <laughs> little much for here. But um Grew up in the largest school district land area in Indiana, so it was just a rural farming community. Um, played some sports, played some basketball. I was a terrible athlete, but somehow we, we won games, um, not because of me, but because of everybody else. And I uh, had, a, had a sister. She's a nurse out in Phoenix, Arizona. You know, not, not very interesting, didn't know what I wanted to do, so I kind of ended up going to West Point because, like, when you, when you don't know what to do, you go into the military, right? I mean, it's a tough college to get into, though. So what did that process look like for you? Did you just one day say, I mean, did you do really well through high school and say, hey, I, you know, I want to be part of something prestigious? Or was it just kind of like a West Point, you threw a dart at a map, and that's that's the school you landed on? It's a tough one. So so uh, my high school basketball coach, his his dad had a is a Vietnam vet, and he came up to me and asked me what, I, what my plans were. And I was like, I don't know. I'm probably going to go to, like, Northwestern or Butler and study finance and he's like do you really want to do that and I said like, well not really I don't, I don't know much about the real world so uh, he's like hey well how about how about how about this and I was like oh that's for like rich congressmen's kids right um, you know I didn't know anything about it and then he told me a little bit more and and at, at that point uh, you know 22 guys decided to, to hijack some planes and and 9-11 happened and so it bought me time in the application process, and like a lot of the, the parents of kids pulled pulled the, the smart kids out of out of the talent pool to, to get in. So Tim Romer, our, my congressman, said, there, "I guess we don't really have anybody else to nominate." So uh, that, that's how I got in. So you're obviously doing well in high school, though. You're considering Northwestern and Butler and, and finance. I mean, were those? Did you do pretty well as a student then academically? Um, reasonably well for a, a kid who refused to take any homework home, and I always told his parents that there's there's nothing to really study. So it's funny we were talking about Randy before the episode. I, you you just remind me exactly of him, and he, he's a brilliant kid who never took homework home because he already, he obviously got everything done before he even left school, where most humans had to spend hours on end. There's nothing more frustrating to me. Like Randy would just never study, and we were in the same <laughs> organic chemistry class, and he would get A's, and I would study my butt off and get like a B plus or an A minus. And Randy awesome in organic assault. chemistry. Well, yeah, he's brilliant. It's, yeah, I mean, he, Randy would just kill it and he didn't even stop. It was the most annoying thing I've ever seen. Yeah, like, what, what, was your, what was your major then? A biology pre-med. Oh, wow. But 
We don't need to have a whole episode on Randy. <laughs> we're not going to talk about Randy. <laughs> so, so but when you get to West Point, I mean, I, I heard you mentioned you need a congressional appointment, and, uh, you know, it's a really a lot of amazing people, I'm sure, that you're surrounding yourself with. So what was your experience? Takes all kinds. Takes all kinds. So what was your experience like at West Point? So you show up right away, and you can kind of go. There's a few different paths people go in. They either buy into it, and they, they buy into, like, every bit of it. They like survive it or they see how the system's kind of created and then deconstruct it and figure out like where you're going to fit in and kind of do what you want to do and follow a path. So that's kind of what I chose, um, but it was kind of, you know, laid out for me. Um, I don't think I had a whole lot of choice because it's like a run route, right? You show up like day one and they're like, oh, you're going to run this two mile run, right? It's like part of the army PT test, which is terrible by the way, especially, you know, two college wrestlers would be like, this is stupid. But so, you, you run this path and somehow like they thought I was running too fast so they made me go and do this like W kind of shape again and run back and so they're like hey you ran these two miles in like 16 minutes I was like well no I didn't you know this guy out here made me run further and they're like you know why are you talking back to me I'm like well I'm not and they're like well do you want to run it again yeah yeah I'd love to so you know I didn't run it I ran it like in 12 minutes then so not fast um, not 16 minutes but at, at that point, I became like the special kid, like for the cadet basic training. So I received a lot of extra attention, and to the point where a guy, you know, is coming to my room and taking these letters from me and like editing my parents' grammar and like telling me how kind of dumb they were. So at that point, I kind of went in a different path there and saw like, okay, I'm going to see how this system works and kind of do what I want in it. And I lost a ton of weight, and then the second the second detail, I saw this. Uh, some of these cadets that went to combat diver as, as cadets, so they got to go to uh, the Special Forces Dive Program, the dive school. And, and I got to see them, and some people went to Sapper School, and I saw, saw some Green Beret NCOs and some officers, and like, oh, these guys don't seem to care about all the dumb stuff that I don't really like here, so I'll probably try to do what they're doing. So it kind of like set me on this path. What did that path look like? How did that kind of unravel? It was, it was interesting, because you know, you make it through the first year and then you you get a lot of choices, right? You, you can choose what you want to do in the summer. So, and you're referring that, so you make it through your first year of your freshman year of college then. Basically. Yeah. Okay. So you go through your freshman year of college, the first like six months, you have to walk a certain way and eat in a certain way or a little longer. You talk a certain way. Um, I had some interesting leadership during that first semester that also like, you know, kept me on this, this like divergent path of like what is mainstream at West Point. So then it, so then it kind of turned into, it became more interesting because, you know, you do have choices then, you know, as much as people think, you know, you're, you're all doing the same thing every day. You know, you had guys like you that went off and, and wrestled. People like me, I, I tried out, I didn't make it until my junior year. I tried out like two or three times, I guess, for a, a tactical shooting team. So we shot shotgun, pistol, rifle, subgun, uh, three to four days a week. So FBI was training us. We got a lot of really great training from a lot of really great people. Uh, Jose Gordon was sort of like the, um, he does more interesting things now, but he was sort of like the patriarch of this this team and had this awesome opportunity, um, which led to a lot of interesting interactions with like leadership at West Point when you have like a full bird colonel who points a loaded shotgun at you while you're running a range and you have to tell him, hey, hey, you know, we'll kick you off the range if you're gonna continue to point a loaded shotgun at my stomach. So so those are like interactions that, that aren't necessarily typical, but you could try out to do more fun stuff in the summer. I was just to go to like, Basic, basic training and shadow a basic training unit for the summer, which wouldn't have been very cool, right? I mean, who wants to really go to like a regular army basic training and watch these kids like 
learn to march because watching me learn to march was probably miserable if whoever had to. So um, I ended up getting a chance to do it with uh, Seven Special Forces Group. It was a, a learning experience there, um, as you could kind of imagine. Then I went to the Sapper Leader course, failed um, as a cadet, Sapper School, which was also a learning experience. And the next summer I got to go to Special Forces Assessment and Selection as a cadet. Um, had a problem, a mouth problem, where you know I, I wouldn't close it, and I definitely said something, some things that I shouldn't have said to an officer in charge there and learned a hard lesson and got to go back and try it again as a captain in the Army. I was able to pass that time by you know, kind of learning to shut my mouth and kind of doing things my own way still. So I always kind of took the harder path because there was a lot of like too much hubris and pride that, that went into everything I did and I always had like a chip on my shoulder trying to prove somebody wrong. Um, and so like in hindsight, it led to a lot of, you know, there were, those were maturity problems that are benefiting me now, but they were clear you know, defects that, that I tried to turn into um, like a competitive advantage at the time. And, and really there are these like, you know, severe personality and leadership flaws that, that, you know, reared its head later on. And then you deal with them when you're older, right? Or you just don't deal with them. So it sounds like throughout your path, um, going through that though, you were constantly drawn to leadership and elite level groups and you wanted to be a part of something more than just, you know, being average. Um, when you were going to those groups and being surrounded by those people, is there anything in particular that really stuck out to you that kind of kept drawing you back and made that an attractive environment to be in? So when you think about people who get rid of distraction and they focus on being the best they can at that one thing, like probably what you guys did with wrestling, right, at an elite, at a, at an elite program, one of the best programs in the country. I mean, I'm sure you tried to block out distraction and focus on it. And you see these, these men. Um, one Pedro Munoz, I mean, he was a he was a golden knight. He was one of the friendliest people to me on that on that detail um, with Seven Special Forces Group. And when he was like 44 years old, he went back to the force after being a golden knight because he wanted to deploy to Afghanistan and he was killed there. And you think about like a guy like that, you know, he didn't have anything to prove to anybody. He didn't have a reason to go back other than he he was he wanted to fight with the, in the unit that he trained in. And he wanted to go to Afghanistan with guys he knew, and he wanted to, to make a difference over there. And when you see you know, people like that, like the way he, everything from like what he did when he got up in the morning to the way he ate. You know, you talk about your friend Joe, the way he eats. I mean, that, that was Pedro. Um, you see these guys that put everything they had into what they were doing. And I had a friend's dad who was a um, squadron sergeant major over in Delta Force. And so I got to spend some time with spring break over at his house and listening to, to, to those guys and the, 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 the intelligence of the NCOs in those units and the dedication to what they're doing to be the best they can at flooding this building with as many assaulters as they possibly can and take, take shots that are gonna save people's lives. So you saw these, these people are, who are always striving for, for that edge. Um, you know, there's some negative externalities that kind of come along with those personalities sometimes, but um, but there's a dedication to, to excellence. Definitely. And so what I, what I want to touch on is uh, eventually you, you were put into a COO role and commanding officer role. What were some of the things you learned from being a commanding officer, especially of special forces, a lot of elite men and a special forces team? Uh, were there any key takeaways that you had? So it's as good as you want people to be. Like, they're never going to live up to this ideal like image what you have, what success probably looks like. I mean, at least on, on my end. And I had a problem with both in the infantry and there probably driving people too hard on an operation side and expecting too much. Um, and you know, you can 
if you could go back in time, you'd, I would do a lot of things differently, um, you know, in, in like full transparency. There was an article I read the other day that was, you know, why should someone be led by you was, was like the gist of the article. And, you know, that, that really makes you think of, you know, wh why, you know, is it because I like checked these blocks and went to these schools? Does that, is that a good enough reason for these people to be led by me? Um, from an operations side, like I think every, any unit I touched was very successful. Uh, from like a human dimension side, as you can tell by all this personality that just like, you know, oozes from me that, you know, that left a lot to be desired. Um, so, so, yeah, the, the biggest lesson and thing that I had to come to grips with is that if you have a unrealistic sta standard for, for humans, you know, they're never going to meet it. And you know, sometimes you have to take a step back and say, yeah, it's, it's probably good enough for you know, the, the, the talent level and the, the time and, and everything that this person's dealing with in their life. Can we unpack a little bit your path from graduating to when you reached that COO role and then um, any intricacies involved that you said, you know, almost every group that you touched operationally, they ran efficiently and they were able to reach a high level. What was involved in that? So maybe yes. So to the COO is kind of like, it's sort of like civilianizing it is really like an executive officer role in that, in that unit. And, and I'll kind of go into that. So graduate from West Point and then you go to Ranger School as you're an infantry officer. So you, know, you go through ranger school, you, you finish up, and then you go to a unit. And when I got there, there were like four lieutenants in front of me that were supposed to get to platoons. And you know, we had like four months before, three months before deploying to Iraq. I'm like, oh, great. You know, I'm not going to get a platoon. I'm going to be like some staff officer you know, as a lieutenant, the whole lieutenant time when I should be you know, off trying to win the war or something. So um, you, were, you were eager to be deployed. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you go to West Point during that, that time period. I saw like my mentors who are older cadets. I mean, they, they all went off, they were, they were deployed, they're platoon leaders. They, they were off doing great things. Some of them were killed. Uh, Garrison Avery, one of the greatest people I met at that school. I mean, he was killed. Uh, ben Britt, uh, Dennis Zielinski, they were killed. Um, and you, and you, you understood that like you, you were going to branch infantry. Well, like I knew I was going to branch infantry. And then at that point, after you branch infantry, you're going to go to ranger school. You're going to pass ranger school. After you pass ranger school, you're going to deploy with an infantry unit. Right? And in ranger school, um, what was the the word I'm looking for? Basically, like filtration. Like how many people compared that went into how many people graduated? Uh, that's, that's a good question. I, I know of like my my peers. Like it was just the expectation to graduate. So I don't know too many guys who didn't. Um, I, I know that there is like a fair amount of attrition in the school. But That's I never, the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I never mm -hmm. really, I never really thought about it. You know, it was, the yeah. expectation was like when it, it would be like if you guys would go, you're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to leave until I've won, right? Mm -hmm. So you finished that, and you said there's about four months before they deploy. It, yeah. So then you, you, you know, I was waiting for a platoon, and then suddenly there was a, a guy got fired. A platoon leader got fired, and there was, I was like, oh, there's three ahead of me, and then the battalion commander calls me in. And he's like, okay, you're going to go to this platoon with this very seasoned platoon sergeant who was wounded on the last deployment, stayed in theater. He's been a platoon sergeant for like three years, really talented dude. Um, but they're like, he's basically fired his last platoon leader, so good luck. Um, which is interesting, right? You know, you're 22 years old. He has all the experience, just like any lieutenant coming in that isn't prior service. You know, you go in and you're taking over that platoon. Um, we, 
we ran a range because of my experience at West Point with this team. I was able to kind of take control of it a little bit differently and be a little bit more aggressive with the training. And I think that was kind of surprising to them. And then at that point, uh, you know, if we had about an eight month process of feeling each other out while we were deployed and probably appreciating this, the skill set, but we had a 15 month deployment. So that means we had about half where we really did appreciate one another. And uh, operationally, we were able to affect the battle space. I, and it's not my words. Uh, we we're working with a fifth special forces group team that was probably one of the best teams in group at the time. Mike Lee was their team sergeant. Brian Farrell was their detachment commander. I still talked to um, one of the guys on the team, Pat, and and he, they said that they've never seen an infantry platoon affect a battle space like we did, but it's because we basically applied the principles that they taught. My, my platoon sergeant was really good at mapping out and figuring out like enemy lines of communication and some uh, like cache points, and we were good at disrupting the enemy, so we just try to see, treat the good people really good and the bad people really bad. And if you don't know, you treat them really well, right? Because you never know, you know when, when you're gonna run into that person or if they're gonna contemplate putting a bomb in deeper or bigger. Um, you know, you, you, you take some lumps, you learn some lessons. Uh, there's, there's definitely over a 15 month deployment, you know, there's one day I would take back that I, I made some significant mistakes because I was lazy. Uh, and the, the rest of the time, I'd say we, we stayed pretty switched on. Is there anything significant that you take away from your time being 22 and then put in this leadership role? How are you able to you know, take that position and gain respect from your peers and lead them in a way that you know, got a lot of value? You said you obviously um, showed you know, impressive strides in that role. Do you remember, like, I mean, do you walk in and do you just tell people you know, what to do and they respect it, or do you articulate in a certain way? One of the first things was these, these guys were in an area called Hoesia, and if you were to look at Hoesia in the news recently, you would see that it's still like an ISIS stronghold. And it's one of the few places where the ideology was, has been there since pre-Saddam, and it's going to be there you know, until the end of time. So it was trying to get these guys to transition out of a mindset from 06, 07, when they had a bunch of, you know, one of my squad leaders had his four roommates killed in an IED. Um, most of these guys had been blown up 20, 30 times. They'd been in trucks that are blown up. So there, there was some, some baggage that you obviously carry, you know, if that's the case. So I was trying to get them to tactfully tell them that the deployment that they were going on wasn't the same as the previous one, that certain skill sets apply and, and certain principles are going to apply, but you can't take the same mental model and apply it to the next fight and have it be 100% accurate. There's always going to be fallacy. Uh, so first it was listening and understanding, right? Like understanding the, the operational environment. If I would go in there and start talking, it would be like putting on a set of track shoes and like stepping on your crank because uh, you're just going to say something that, that gets shoved in your face down the road. Uh, but it's also not, they expect you to make decisions. So my platoon sergeant and my squad leaders expected me early on to make decisions. You know, the first patrol out there, they expect you, you know, the one of the early patrols, you take contact and they expect you to take charge. You know, my platoon sergeant expects to run Kazavac and Medivac, so like take care of all the people that would, you know, theoretically get hurt or always be prepared and maneuvering trucks and expects us to maneuver. So when you when you look at that, uh, you know, there's a, a balance of trying to involve, you know, making sure that you're involving your squad leaders, your 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 younger leaders. Um, the squad leaders with all the experience, my platoon sergeant with all the experience, but at the end of the day, they expect you to make a decision.
when did when did you finish your deployment and from from finishing your deployment how long how much longer did you stay in the army uh so i finished that deployment and i guess uh thanksgiving of 08 time frame uh, i think i we bought my wife a car on black friday because we didn't have one um it's always a good thing to get. Yeah, yeah, right. Like <laughs> making your way back into normal civilian life. Yeah, the, the first time step. driving though after the deployment because I I wasn't driving over there. Like there's a Adam Harris was driving the truck and then there's a guy gunning and and so the first time driving was quite the experience and I had to like pull off on you know outside of Nashville and my change out with my wife. So not not the most proud moment, but it was one of those things that just happens. Um, and when did you see so you finished? college in what year? Oh, six. Okay. And then you came back here in 08. So you were gone for two years and basically. So I graduated ranger school, um, in like early 07 or mid 07 deployed in like August. Yeah. August. And then got back at, you know, right at Thanksgiving, um, the day before or the Friday before I think, or Thursday or Wednesday before. I mean, so, so when we look at it, um, it was about 15 months, for, for that rotation is with the 101st Airborne. And then from from there, I came back and went over to Scouts. So it was a different platoon. They had three or f- they had three guys killed on the, their deployment. All their leadership was basically uh, changing out. And so we had to bring in these, it's supposed to be an elite unit within the battalion. So we had to bring in younger guys, like assess them, train them, and, and try to get them ready for Afghanistan, knowing I wasn't going to go on that deployment with them uh, because of heading over to the special forces qualification course so that was kind of the you know get get the right people you know in the right seat on the bus and then you know head out from there and so i brought my squad leader over from my old my old platoon um he went to a bunch of training he went to ranger school because of it got to be a ranger instructor and now he's a first sergeant out in hawaii he got a citizenship um u.s citizenship on deployment with us like that's like one of my most proud moments of you know, we really needed this guy, uh, but you know, we. Uh, I talked to Ezekiel and said, you know, it's more important, you know, to me, and it should be more important to him to get his citizenship while he's deployed, and it's easy to do, versus uh, having to wait. So he, you know, came over. Uh, I, he, his his mom came from Mexico. He came from Mexico, and he's like one of the best soldiers I've I've ever met. And uh, took him over to scouts. And I think he ended up being a platoon sergeant over there, taking over in Afghanistan and doing a great job. So I feel like, you know, accomplished part of part of getting those guys ready. And then meanwhile, heading out to uh, the Special Forces Qualification Course. And what was that experience like? Um, there's a lot of role playing after. First, it's like physical toughness, right? You, to your point about attrition, you start with about in, the, in assessment and selection, you start with you know, let's say you start with 300 guys, there's 100, you know, about the end, they want to see two thirds of the folks kind of fall to the wayside for a variety of reasons. And out of those 100, what percentage of those are the types of guys that you were in class with at West Point versus people who just joined from normal civilian life? Sure. So, so there are a lot of different paths, right? You know, there's the 18 x-ray program where they take talented people like you and you go straight to, uh, to a few different, you know, go to airborne school, go to something called SOPSI, and then you go to selection, and then you go through the Q course, go to a team. There's guys who come from the regular army who, you know, maybe they're a E4, E5, whatever, in, a, in another unit. Uh, and then there's the officers. I'm trying to think on the officer side that I think we had like 26 that we started with. Uh, I think we probably finished up. There's probably a healthy third, maybe maybe half.
Definitely. And, and from there, it's normal, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely normal. Like, eh, I was just going to let you roll with it. I'm like, all right, this guy that's normal is different than me. So, <laughs> but, uh, so from after, after SAF, SFAS training, where'd you go from there? Uh, there, like SUT, it's like a mini ranger school. Mm-hmm. So for guys who, who, uh, it's, it's a good baseline for patrolling in the woods and we're, we're terrible, but we had a really good instructor, Troy Peterson. <laughs> And he, I enjoyed it because he liked people learning the hard way, and I like to learn the hard way. So, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. That Troy uh, really made sure that we uh, learned what we needed to learn, and he, he did it. He did it as any like I, I have a lot of respect for the dude as an instructor because he, he he brought it every day. I mean, he it didn't matter how tired he was, and if he stayed up for 22 hours with you, and everybody else is cycling out, not that dude. Like I don't I don't know what he took back there, and that you know when. When he'd go back by himself, he was drinking rippets, whether he's drinking like wild tigers or something, but the dude, the dude brought it. So that was a really good experience. Then you have like language school, seer school, or we had seer school right after. So you have, you're familiar with seer school at this point, no? Mm-hmm. So, so you, my, my dad was a Marine for 21 years. Okay. So he was an officer. So he, yeah, he went through seer school. Got it. He said it was pretty miserable. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are the details behind that? It starts as survival, right? Mm-hmm. So, SEER uh, stands for survival, um, escape, resist, evade, or whatever. Probably reverse the E's. But um, so the whole idea is they teach you some survival skills, like stuff that you know most people from the country know how to do. Like, hey, how to how to kill a chicken, skin it, and cook it. You know, same thing with like rabbits and goats and things. Um, like what plants you can and can't eat, and you have these. Guys who were special forces guys for 20, 30 years, like, uh, I can't remember his first name, but he's a former Sergeant Major Smith. He's like in the Special Forces Hall of Fame and he's your SEER school instructor and now he's Mr. Smith and he's out there and, um, you know, you have to build a fire in a certain amount of time. So then you go through the survival stuff and then you do a bunch of training during that time of like what to do if you, if you are, are getting captured, right? So the whole idea is survive capture so they teach you how to survive capture and then the whole idea is to to resist and then and then you have an exercise where you put everything together so mm-hmm. you're you're getting captured we we you're escaping you're resisting you're evading you're then in a resistance training lab which is like a you know mock prison and it's supposed to resist in there <laughs> so so you, finish, you finish that school do you deploy again before you finish uh, up your time or? so I ended up in Africa um, after there's a few more of like phases of the Q course, like learning Russian and then going to North Africa where, you know, not a whole lot of Russian. But um, so I was last in Libya. We're standing up a counterterrorism force. I was a detachment commander at this point, uh, standing up a, a counterterrorism force in, in Libya after the fall of Gaddafi. And uh, during that, basically our camp was overrun um, by like 400 militia. We were off site and it was during Ramadan. And the mission set kind of changed pretty rapidly at that point. And there's a lot of other drama that we could talk about kind of off off the air with working with like the other government agencies that are there, the State Department, you know, CIA, NSA, FBI. And there's a lot of drama associated with that deployment outside of the operational side, not from a personal standpoint, but some professionalism issues of, of other units that were involved. Um, like I said, we could, we could talk over some beers or something. Or mm-hmm. yeah, it sounds like an inter- yeah interesting uh, thing to dive into. But I'm curious. So 
during that time you say we're what are you, what is your team size who are you over there with that's in your specific team or group sure so normally you're part of a 12 person team i went to a unit where uh, i was a commanders and extremist force or now they're a commanders reactionary force so you're owned by the cocom which is owned by you're owned by the combatant commander so like africa all the world's broken into like africom africa command ucom europe european command PACOM, Pacific Command, blah, blah, blah. There's a NORTHCOM now, that's scary, but that's like the North American Command, so what, what are they actually doing? <laughs> Anyways, that's a, that's a whole other like, topic of, uh, of discussion. So we were transitioning from this regular traditional special forces company to this company that's more shooting focused, more, um, uh, it's sort of like a stopgap. The, the, the whole idea of the unit is, is to be uh, much more focused on on uh, providing a quick reactionary force for that combatant commander, whether it's like a Boko Haram type thing in Africa where those girls are kidnapped and bring back the girls. Well, there are people who are designed to help bring back the girls. It's just you know whether we have the political will to actually you know do something like that or if it makes sense from a foreign policy uh, standpoint. So, so with the stand-up of that, we, we were broken into a little different type of uh, structure. So we had people from two different teams. So. My team was mainly a reconnaissance, a sniper reconnaissance team. And this other team, there were some assaulters who were this hodgepodge. We had some intel assets that were attached to us. Um, ma mainly, uh, yeah, we had, we had four people on the intel side. We had some commo people. And then after that mission, it scaled back. And then we, we went down to a much smaller footprint after the, our camp was overrun um, and, and focused on, on more of a you know, what can we do from a longer medium to longer term positioning within that country? And you guys are a pretty close-knit group. Are you, are you with each other for, you know, extended periods of time, or are you constantly switching groups throughout your duration on deployments? So, so with that, I mean, the people you deploy with, they're your, your team. You know, it's not necessarily the team you'd always choose, but it's the team you fight with for the duration of that trip, right? So we had a trip. We were in Malawi before that. Uh, we were training the Malawian military uh, before they were going to go fight DRC um, or fight M23 and DRC at that point. And so we transitioned from that and then went to Libya after that with this kind of makeup of two teams put together, which obviously leads to a little different personal dynamic. We brought on a new team sergeant during that time, which also led to a little different dynamic. Uh, so it made things more interesting from a uh, interpersonal relationship side than it probably should have been. I think, you know, we could spend all day talking about your military experience. I think you got a lot of really inter interesting stories and obviously have uh, had a lot of amazing experiences in your time there, but jumping into, you know, your path, coming back to a civilian and the Alan Morgan group kind of, how was that created? And is there anything interesting to talk about in your transition from, you know, the military to, you know, the normal civilian life? Was it, um, you know, I, you sometimes you hear people leave an environment that's you know very team oriented and people who are um, doing something at such a high level where your life depends on it to going back to you know like you look at our job and it's just not nobody's gonna die if we don't get things done you know it's just you might think it in the moment and you know sometimes like even things today that we had conversations at work that you know they they reach high intensity and then we sit down with someone like you and we realize you know it's really quite meaningless in the big scheme of things so I guess it's a long-winded way for me to ask you, um, what was that experience like for you, and, and what, is, what does that kind of mean to you personally? So I transitioned to New, New Corps Steel first through a like junior military officer transition company. They're a good company. New Corps is a good company. 
uh, for you know what it is and what it does and what it isn't. So, uh, but it wasn't gonna. It was tough for me. You know, it was more of an Eric Sperling problem than it was a Nucor Steel problem. Where, you know, I had trouble transitioning from working with. Uh, we had a fairly tight relationship with him. the guy who was in charge of me, and, and Libya was a SEAL Team Six guy's his career, and was a 06 in the Navy that had an, an amazing amount of experience that I could never touch. And it was amazing to work for a guy like that. And he was very level and even keeled. And same thing with Jim Linder, who's General Linder above him. They were peers at one point in JSOC and they were awesome to work for. If, if that was the leadership in the military, like we never would have met because I never would have left. If that was like average for the military. Um, but it was really difficult for me to transition from like interfacing with an ambassador on a weekly basis to interfacing with my manager at Nucor Steel. Um, and it was more of, like I said, a me problem. He's a good man. Uh, you know, he took steel very seriously. And I took my being successful in my job seriously, um, but I didn't necessarily like have the same passion that he had for steel making. Uh, no, so, yeah, I think that's kind of relatable to the experience that we talked about at a much smaller level. I mean, we were fortunate to be surrounded by really high-level people that took yeah. life, you know, and what they were doing and their focus very seriously. Yeah. They performed at a high level, and then you, um, you just don't, you don't. I think, I think what we've come to realize is there are still a lot of amazing people out there in their own ways, but the, you might never find people that are the same. They're not going to match up to that caliber, mm -hmm. at least in in what you cared about and what your focus was in life, you know. And it's yeah. uh, it's kind of it is really hard and kind of a weird experience to go back and just not experience not have that anymore you know so where i guess better question to turn that into instead of a long-winded statement again is where have you found that since being done with Nucor? so I, I reconnected with a guy who i met at west point he had jumped into afghanistan um in part of third ranger battalion when before he was a cadet and so he was older than me i was kind of put in charge of him and then we ended up on the same tactical shooting team whatever you want to call it there and so he was also at Nucor Steel. His father-in-law owns the company that we transitioned with. Uh, he, he didn't really want to do it, but you know he had to make his father-in-law happy. He's a good man. Um, so he had gotten in the digital world because he was very. He had a different army experience than me after West Point. It was pretty terrible. They put him in charge of like rehab platoons, like try to make everybody better in it. And they're like straight Vietnam stories of like grabbing the the marijuana leaves, you know, as they're as they're driving by and like taking it back to their they're uh, like choose these container housing units and he's dealing with all of that. And so he got in this like path of like, what's digital marketing, what's SEO while he's still in the military. And, and so then at that point he was like super, uh, I mean, he was living separate with his wife. He was just tired of, of working the job he was working. And we we're like, well, we might as well give something a shot. I'm like, I, I didn't even know what WordPress was or install like, like what's a how does a website really work? I didn't know any of that stuff, but I figured I could figure it out. It couldn't be too complicated. It's probably a good first step to creating a digital marketing SEO company. It's probably <laughs> a <good laughs> jumping off point. How do websites work? Okay. That's... Yeah, I was like, oh, stuff on the internet. I'm like, I don't know. Step one: learn what the internet is. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I didn't have a Facebook profile. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't have you know anything else. You know, I didn't have any social profiles. I was like. I don't even know what that stuff really is. Yeah, it's it's funny. You know, as Steve, we had a guy named Steve Weil on the show, and Steve. Sold one of the largest roofing companies, like uh, largest individual roofing companies of all time. And, and Steve said, you know, the first thing I did was sell a roof. And he goes, then the second thing I did was learn how to make one. So, you know, it's, it's just funny how a lot of entrepreneurs are like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then it's like, I have no idea how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. 
It's funny though, there's kind of different personality traits. So he's kind of just a, a gunslinger, and I feel like he's more of a shoot from the hip and knows that he's going to make it kind of guy. And I kind of take you more as, and we've only been sitting together for 45 minutes, so not that I can read you like a book, but like more of, you know, it's just like, hey, I think it's just time to move on. I'm very confident in what I've achieved in my life, and I know that I have a good person with me. You know, we're going to be successful. But it seems like you don't do anything without it being well thought out. So I'm assuming there's probably. Um, a process throughout there where you guys really did your research before you jumped off? I think we thought so. (laughs) (laughs) Prove me wrong then. (laughs) Yeah, I I think we thought we did. Uh, I I was in a um, distance MBA program through Indiana University at the time. Uh, You know, it was like trying to get out of the steel company. And and I had two kids. You know, I just had one born. And... Looked at looked at the other companies like in the space in Columbus and Dallas. We're like, okay, well, we had some mentors online who are like con artists, straight scam artists. Like that, that's a whole nother. I mean, as bad as it gets. But I wasn't. I, I'm much more skeptical of people. John is like. Turns out I didn't realize it at the time that he's much more trusting of people, and it's because we had very divergent paths where, you know, I. It was just different different experiences. So. He was much more trusting of, of these folks, and I wasn't the one hearing it. And now, like even when he comes back to me with one of those, I you know I just like thump it hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know I, I didn't know anything. The first thing about sales, and I didn't realize like any company that like you 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 have to be able to sell, right? It doesn't matter if you can rank a website or run ads to a website successfully. Like every organization is a sales organization at heart. So I mean I, I had no idea. I, I mean I what my dad was in sales, and the one thing I knew I didn't want to do was sell. And the one thing, like, he never wanted to see me do is try to sell because he's like, you have no personality, and you know, how are you ever going to sell anything? So, in, currently, you focus on sales and marketing, right? Yeah, at AMG. yeah. So, uh, kind of a bit of a turnaround there. Yeah, kind uh, of. But how have you managed to shape yourself into that sales and marketing leader to be able to, you know, find your way about it? I, I suspect I kind of know how. I'm guessing it took some hard work and really studying up, but. And how has the company formed? I mean, how has it evolved? So it evolved as two dudes who had no idea what they were doing with, with digital, right? I mean, in all honesty, we said, oh, we can figure it out if all these other people have, have done it. Like, why can't we? Um, and, and now at this point, we work with a lot of bigger agencies doing, like, focusing on SEO. We have some clients that found us via the internet. We have some people that, that we've sold hard, and we have some people most of the time we just say, this is what you're getting, this is what you're not getting. And it's just, as long as we get introductions at this point, we pretty much close a new business. Um, and we, we mainly get things through referral at this point in time, and we're trying to figure out what it looks like replicating the success we've had in Columbus uh, through through sales reps in other cities. Um, I mean, I was really proud to say that our sales rep last year that, that works with us, that he he almost made twice as much as his highest earning year ever in his life last year. So, I mean, like from a, from like a, actually making that person's, you know, bottom line within their household better, you know, I feel like to, to me, that was a point of pride. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, unlike what I thought I was exposed to initially, you don't have to treat people poorly in order to get results, whether it's in the army, whether it's at making steel or, you know, building some online, you know, website out there. And what separates you guys from other companies that are also doing digital marketing SEO? Yeah, we're, we're talking about that. Uh, we talk about that as a lot, you know, a lot trying to think about how are, how are we going to grow and how can we 
first off, we've seen a lot of companies both in town and in Dallas, and then we have clients on both coasts. We have we have clients in like 26 states at this point, and we 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 see a lot of people who've hired it in the past, and you you, you they just don't deliver. Right? So so one thing is actually delivering it, actually measuring it. We have one client that the reason why we got our biggest client is because we were willing to actually put analytics on a website. That was it. I mean, you talk about like a barrier to, like a bar set so low um, because there's so many bad companies out there doing it and say that they do it and then actually don't deliver. So it doesn't matter if we're going to take a loss on a, on a client for a month or two, like we're going to figure out how, how to deliver the service to them. We, we have a client and they've been with us for, for a while now, but we got to a point where their, their site wasn't moving for some particular terms and you know we're running ads and we're doing some other things to, to drive revenue but the bottom line you know we said if we weren't at this point you know at the nine month mark we were going to stop invoicing him and we we're going to work for three months well he didn't actually think we were and the next thing he knew you know all he, he started to get a bunch of business pouring in and he realized like oh these guys actually i'll open the emails from them they actually have been working um and he's still a client and he pays us again and everything else so so i think it's one of those things if you do what you say you're going to do and if you if you don't if you if you don't have an excuse but you have a plan of how you're going to how you're going to get there, uh, then I think you can be successful in just about anything. And then what do the experts look like on the back end for you guys? Is it still you two that are um, turning the knobs that kind of have the special sauce behind the scenes? Or so John got deep into a world of um, you know you start with these like fake like you know like the world of false profits right you know false SEO profits and then uh, who are just you know, hustlers, con artists, scammers, whatever you want to call them. Um, and, and then now eventually we found a really core group, good group of people. Some of them have even more problems selling than we did initially, but excuse me, they're really good at delivery. So we've been able to, he's been able to work with these guys and help them um, by, by giving them, training them and then giving them some of our, some of our business in a 1099 capacity. I don't want to talk too much because our accountant won't like it. Um, but we, we leverage those folks as 1099 uh, on, on some of the delivery side. On, on, and then we have some folks that we've trained. Um, we're trying to hire here. We've had some folks that we've trained, uh, especially overseas, to do very specific tasks. We found you know, using VAs that if, if the same person does the same task for eight hours a day, five days a week, you know, they're going to be very good at that task. You know, we ask them to stay in their comfort zone, just like you'd ask a source to stay in you know, to, to, to do the things they're comfortable with, just like you'd ask a private in the army to only take on the tasks they're comfortable with. So, so we've been able to build workflows and use project management tools to, to say like you were, you were doing this, you know, you get this input, this is what the output looks like, this is the expectation. So it's kind of like a contractor model basically is, is the backbone of the company at this point. Yeah, and we, we want to get into, you know, it's like that double-edged sword of like, how does it work then when you start talking about benefits and you start talking about profit sharing? Because we, we want to bring on American employees, but I'm not going to pay somebody like what I don't like ask them to take what they're not what, what they're not willing to take. To, I'm, we tried bringing on some lower level, less talented people and like we'll never try to do that again because it just is enraging to me. <laughs> um, you know, you expect people to, to try. And if they're not paid enough to try at this point, we're just trying to find now the right the right people. If we find the right people, we're definitely going to be be hiring both in Dallas and Columbus. It's just finding the right people, and then we have some uh, a strategy that we need to build out more of on the training side for bringing on sales reps in other places. But we probably have the first guy we want to bring on. How long have you guys been going for at this point? 
Um, what, what year is it now? Uh, 2018. Yeah, myself the same. So so we we kind of officially like I left my job in November of 2016, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I I think we we're just getting better, but we're still you know we're still we're still pretty new. And raising a family of three, right? Yeah. And obviously one is well fed, so we know know you're doing something right. But uh, so so what I want to touch on is what what are you guys' goals then long term, five ten years out with AMG. Yeah, so there, there's some interesting channel partners that, that we're exploring right now where uh, I, I think not too many digital companies have, have done that. So we'd like to explore and uh, we're working through a, a test within this channel that I think has the ability to, to rapidly increase growth without necessarily having to bring on a whole lot of sales, but just focusing on operations, which is probably a better, better suit for us. Uh, otherwise, you know, I'd like to see you know, what it looks like penetrating into the, these other markets and, and finding a way to to see if it's if it's scalable and repeatable but right now we don't know that you know I can I can say in theory that this is what it looks like generating generating leads there but a, a lot of what we do is more of on a consulting side like my, my peers my friends like they work for Deloitte they work for McKinsey they work for these these companies so you know, you're not getting Deloitte or McKinsey with us, but during the initial consultation process, you are getting a lot more business insights and like, what's your, you know, what's what's ROAS need to be, you know, what what's what are current ROIs, like, you know, can we can we cut your payment processing? Can we, you know, w- w- from a broader strategy, SEO isn't going to work, which we have to tell people all the time, like, you know, you want the internet to do that for you, but it can't. Like, I'm sorry, you know, here are other channels that may. Um, so, you know, I, I I think we're either building out. We have a great channel partner, and that that works. Or we're building up like more of a technical sales force. That when you talk about like what's the company look like, you know whether we maintain ownership or it ends up transitioning to somebody else. You know eventually, you know it's it's either it's one or the other, a channel or a technical sales force. It has to be. And uh, I guess you know as we kind of start to wrap things up, um, one of the things I'm curious about. I mean, you've gone through obviously a lot of really life-changing experiences that most humans will never, you know, go through in their life. And I guess at this point, what kind of, what's the most motivating thing to you? I'm, I'm assuming one of them that you're going to say is family, but, you know, you've seen a lot of struggle and you've experienced, you know, people who have passed away, sacrificing their life for, you know, United States and great causes. Um, I guess kind of, yeah, I guess the best way to say is like, what motivates you today and kind of what is your outtake on your future and your goals and, and where do you see yourself for the next, you know, 20, 30 years? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, he surprised you. It wasn't on the. Uh, it wasn't yeah, that on one the was outline. not on the outline. Sorry, I just. I mean, <laughs> no, here, no. here in a story like yours, um, and the things you've experienced. I, I just. I, I mean, I mean, I'll like I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I. If if I could go back in time and change a lot of things, like, of of how I was, you know, I would do that. Despite having great experiences and having some operational successes, like there's there's a lot of things like, you know, mainly starting with you know I. I didn't necessarily grow up in a house of any faith, and, and I feel like that's fundamentally a part of who I am now, um, is, is, is having faith. And, and I can tell you that I had an engine block like fly across like my face, and that because um, I was dismounted during an IED, and that still didn't like you know change me in any way at all. I had RPGs where the people didn't pull the pin out of the nose. And they're landing and bouncing around me, and the people literally—they just didn't pull the pin. And my driver is like, "Hey, 
sir, did you see that? Did you know that those were RPGs sitting there? And I was like, well, I looked at him like, oh, I do now, you know? And he just like, you know, keep fighting, right? Um, and, but like through all of that, you know, it was just focused on what, what is my career in the army going to look like? I'm gonna try it for Delta Force, or I'm gonna try to go to the CIA, or I'm gonna, and th th those were the two things I thought I was going to do. And then I had a deployment to Libya and it turned like everything that I thought I was going to do and everything that I used as self-identification and like where I found self-worth self was like flipped 100% on its head. Like I said, that's like a story for another time, but you wanna talk about like humbling and then, and then getting out and just being angry, um, you know, in this job that I'm like, what am I doing? Like going and making steel, like not that I'm not trying to take that away from anybody. Um, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, is this how people, humans live? Like, I, I was, you know, super confused. I mean, to be very honest with you. And then I started this company, like, couldn't figure out how to sell, you know, to anybody that, like, this patent attorney friend didn't introduce us to, and they were terrible clients, by the way. Um, the first the first couple, like, uh, I think that's just the way it is. Um, you're like, this is a terrible interview. Um, so, so, so w with, with that, you know, it, if you would have asked me, you know, a couple of years ago, I would have given you a much different perspective. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. Like, like hopefully make a difference. Um, you know, hopefully not drive out of here and get on, you know, 670 and 71 and see like an encampment of four people and like not stop and, you know, try to help those people. Like the most convicting thing in the world is like moving to Columbus and you see, you see, you, you drive from one part of town to another or you're like sitting at Roosevelt Coffee and you, you have like BMWs and Mercedes parked outside and, and then everyone just walks by these, these dudes on the street like they don't exist. And you wanna talk about like the most convicting thing in the world is like knowing that there's so many people out there that like need, need some sort of help. Um, and you know, I didn't do anything forever. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't care as long as, as long as I was, you know, getting mine, I didn't, I didn't care. So I don't know, man, I don't, I don't know what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that, uh, you know, I, I think What's so interesting about this conversation is sitting down and hearing something like that, you realize that I think everybody struggles from those same kind of identity crisis. We kind of get so caught up in the moment of what we're doing on a daily basis. We think it's the most interesting or most important thing in the world. And we think that, you know, if it doesn't go right, you know, everything's going to fall and it's going to crumble. But I guess at the most fundamental core, what I think would be so moving about going through the experiences that you've had is you realize that human interaction, human life, and, you know, having faith, if, if you're an individual that listens that has faith, is really what it all comes down to, you know, it's like, if nobody's, if nobody's going to die, or somebody's life hasn't changed in some type of way, it really doesn't matter that much, um, but you don't realize that on a daily basis, so you can't really, I guess, like, you can only guilt people to such an extent, because it's like, people have never gone through that and they don't get the chance to sit down with someone like yourself on a daily basis and hear what life is really like in a really dark part of the world um you know one of, in our another bring it back to wrestling unfortunately but another one of our coaches kind of had a really traumatic experience and that brought him to faith and it took him to an extremely dark place to kind of eventually show you the light you know <laughs> so we've gotten we've gotten really deep down this whole, whole so thing we're in a really deep place and i, and I think yeah, it's a good but time i mean i i, I think i you know I guess the way to finally wrap it up is just it's um, almost it's almost relieving to hear your story and know that you know you you've gone through that and you've ach you've achieved things at a high level but it's because you've seen a lot of darkness you know 
And I think it's it's probably opening for some people who are listening just to realize that a lot of things that they're worrying about probably don't matter in the big scheme of things. I mean, it's not that it's not important, but it's not. Uh, mm-hmm. It's probably not as monumental as they think. Yeah. Didn't, didn't get enough likes on the last Instagram post. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, in our, in our last question, uh, one that we always finish up with is focus on the theme of our show: live uncomfortably. Uh, it doesn't mean a lot more than just pushing yourself outside your comfort zone every day. So, what do you think of when you hear the phrase? And how does it apply to your life? So, so I think when I hear the phrase at this point, live uncomfortably, um, like I, I do think of a life like based in faith and, and actually living it out. Because if, if you are living it out, then it should be uncomfortable. Um, if, if everyone, it's sort of like uh, the w- one thing I really like about like Kenny Sipes over there at Roosevelt Coffee is like, you know, his whole coffee shop is, is it's almost centered around like what Bob Goff does, right? What love does. Um, and you see that, I mean, he, he, he lives it. Like, you know, he, he lives it out every day. And I think that that's one of the most uh, impressive things. And you talk about a dude that probably, when I think of like embodies live uncomfortably, it's probably a guy like that. Uh, because he is like figuring out how he can make a difference. And I think, you know, hearing, hearing his story how he, and how he thought that, so what God wanted him to do is to like try to connect with people differently in some way, shape, or form, and I think you he he gave up what what he knew and had to uh, to live uncomfortably. So I kind of look at that look at that guy and what and what he did is uh, is almost like with what the uh, he epitomizes uh, the the term for me. Definitely, I think that's a great place to wrap up, Eric. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and and conquerors. Thanks a lot for listening. That was Eric Sparling with a lot, of, a lot of great stories and a lot of great advice and a lot of insight into his experiences. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode, and we'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say, Thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know you have to choose it And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire 
to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.